One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 233, Obedience. We left Henry waiting anxiously for the news that his second wife had received the application of the chop, which he duly received on the 19th of May. The 45-year-old Henry immediately ordered the royal barge and the heavily gilded boat slipped out onto the Thames and set off up the river. Eventually, it arrived at a grand house on the banks of the river at Chelsea. Now, Henry had been to Chelsea before to visit the house of a friend he'd then executed, Thomas More. Now, however, he was visiting his latest squeeze, the 27-year-old Jane Seymour. So today we're going to hear about the new Queen and her family and spend the rest of the podcast talking about the Princess Mary and the fallout from Anne's fall. But before that, I have just a bit of advertising and housekeeping that'll take just two minutes to be valuable. First of all, remember Heather, who did the guest episode on Renaissance choral music a few weeks ago? She's created a 2018 monthly and weekly diary in a gorgeous cover that looks like an illuminated manuscript filled with Tudor quotes, this week in Tudor history, and even a Spotify playlist with listening recommendations each month. It's called The Tudor Planner, And you can see a video, lots of pictures, and get your hands on one by going to her shop website, tudorfair.com, where it's the first product listed. Enter the code SHED, all lowercase, at the checkout for $5 off the planner, especially for the History of England podcast listeners. Can't say fairer than that. (laughs) So that's tudorfair.com. Plus, you might think membership of the History of England would make the perfect Christmas present for your loved ones. You might think perfect's a little strong, but if you do, just go to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk where I have a way to do it for you. OK, so back to it. Henry brought the news to Chelsea that Anne was indeed dead and that the obliging Archbishop Cranmer had delivered a dispensation for Jane and him to marry. This dispensation has troubled people over the years because it was in the third degree. Many books simply gloss over the fact and say it was because Henry and Jane were fifth cousins, but that's not what the dispensation says. The explanation some have come up with is that maybe there's something to do with an affair with somebody connected with Jane. Anyway, we'll probably never know. So who then is this Jane Seymour? The Seymour family were not by way of great magnates, by no means of the front rank, and yet nor were they ciphers. They had the ancestry thing going on, claiming to be descended from the Normans of St. Moor. They were important lords locally in Wiltshire, with estates worth 270 quid a year. And Jane's father, John, had been at the major events of the last two reigns, so the Battle of Blackheath against the Cornish rebels in the service of Henry VII, at Therouanne and Tournai in 1513 with the young king, and at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. But having said that, He was clearly not ambitious to succeed at court himself, but his sons and his daughters were sent to court. Jane had been in Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn's household since 1529. Her talented older brother Edward Seymour had been at court from the tender age of 14 
that in 1514 he was attached to the household of Mary Tudor. Over the years, he'd remained visible to the king, if maybe a bit on the periphery. But in 1531, he was made a squire of the body with an annuity of 50 quid a year. We'll hear much more about Edward Seymour. And Jane had two other brothers, Henry and Thomas. Henry disappears from the pages of the story, preferring to spend his time on his estates and dies at a respectably advanced age without all the angst of the rest of his family. Thomas. Thomas, though, now, he's a fish in a very different kettle. Wilder than his brothers, ambitious, a player. He was also at court in the household of the courtier, Francis Bryan. So Jane arrives on the scene really as late as March 1536. There's really no lead-up, though there's a line of thought that she was the mysterious lady referred to who had attracted the interests of the king, but really we don't know. And so suddenly she was propelled to prominence when she appears sitting on the king's lap, at which point Anne goes into a fury, refusing to play the role of the docile wife, which, as we know, is the Anne Boleyn idiom. There is then a short courtship of sorts, while Henry is still married to Anne, which goes down a remarkably similar line to Anne's previous approach. The king sent Jane a valuable present, presumably part of the plan to make Jane his mistress. And after all, Anne was pregnant at the time, and Henry had a bit of a pattern of picking up mistresses when the wife of the moment was pregnant. But Anne sent it back, famously declaring that she had no greater riches in the world than her honour. And once again, this worked a treat and served to suitably inflame the king's ardour. Playing it Jane's way, she was moved into York Place alongside Henry, into rooms with a connecting corridor to Henry's room. Now, that doesn't sound a lot like playing it Jane's way, but she was housed there with her brother and sister-in-law, so everything was above board. Chapuis' judgment on Jane seems to be the one that people follow most. She is of middle height, and nobody thinks she has much beauty. Her complexion is so whitish that she may be called rather pale. At 27, Jane was still unmarried, but this is likely to have a lot more to do with her father's ability to raise an attractive dowry than Jane's physical or mental qualities. Chapuis again wrote, It is said she is rather proud and haughty, but this is, as he says, hearsay rather than his own judgment. What history has tended to see is a calm, quiet kind of person, quiet possibly to mousy, conventional, traditionalist in her religion. The story goes that Jane was the perfect choice for Henry and indeed the court after the stormy days of Anne that Henry chose her precisely because she was Anne's opposite. Quiet, a bit dull, compliant, kind, gentle. Sir John Russell wrote to his friend, I do assure you she is as gentle a lady as I ever knew and as fair a queen as any in Christendom. The king hath come out of hell into heaven for the gentleness in this and the accursed and unhappiness in the other. The other was, of course, Anne Boleyn. The heavy sigh of relief in the letter rustles the pages even now, 500 years later. And there's both negative and positive evidence to suggest this might indeed be the right thing. She appears to have been determinedly kind to Mary, encouraging her, being seen hand in hand with her and giving her due recognition. And indeed there's the suggestion she allowed herself to be coached and rather thrown at Henry just to help the fortunes of her family and the traditionalist faction at court, so well, pliable then. Her motto was bound to obey and serve. So this seems like an open and shut case. But wait just a minute, there are other views available. Starkey points out that Jane seems perfectly willing to step over the corpse of the murdered Anne, 
having quite possibly egged the king and egged a king already married. And then there's the famous quote from the French ambassador. At the beginning of the insurrection, the queen threw herself on her knees before the king and begged him to restore the abbeys. But he told her prudently enough to get up, and he had often told her not to meddle with his affairs, referring to the late queen, which was enough to frighten a woman who's not very secure. The point is supposed to be that Henry puts Jane easily and harshly in her place, and the ambassador comments that she's not very secure. But look, the quote also suggests that this is not the first time Jane has tried to persuade her husband into a course of action. And she's clearly at very least been told several times, and yet here she is again. And we know that she argues at least twice for Mary, returning to the fray a second time after being slapped down first time round. Now, the fact that Henry takes not a blind bit of notice is beside the point. Jane was very clear with her household that these trendy Frenchy habits her predecessor had introduced were to be consigned to the dustbin of history. There'll be no French hoods, thank you very much. Back to the more dowdy English style. And low necklines needed to be supplemented by a sensible cover. So, you could take this as a conservative, shy frame of mind. You could equally take it as an opinionated person well able to impose her will on others. Or indeed, as both. All I'm saying is that it is just conceivable that Jane Seymour was not quite the pushover history appears to have marked her down as. But if you are going to take that view, you have to give her very top marks for acting and dissembling, since most of what we know of her seems to accord with the gentler viewpoint. Let's have some dates, since everyone knows that history is not history without a generous helping of dates. Anne's head was chopped off on the 19th. By the afternoon, as we've seen, Henry was at his new lover's home in Chelsea. And then we get a marriage made in Chelsea. The very next day, the 20th May, Henry and Jane were betrothed, probably at Chelsea, though Chapuis claims York Place. Seriously, it's indecent, isn't it? Seriously, his previous wife's head had scarcely stopped rolling across the scaffold when he was betrothed. One explanation for this thoroughly heartless behaviour is that, yep, Henry was thoroughly heartless, and anyway, he'd convinced himself that Anne had indeed been sleeping around. But another more plausible explanation is that Henry's pride had been seriously damaged below the waterline. He'd convinced himself that Anne really was a bad lot. And rather than show that he'd been affected by being cockolded, here he was living it up with his new paramour already. Either way, someone must have been brave enough to say something... Or maybe Henry rather belatedly did develop a heart, because the pair of them laid low for ten days, before they took the boat down river and were actually married at York Place on the 30th of May. Ten days being the height of restraint and decorum, obviously. As we know well from the story of Edward IV and the Woodvilles, the problem of marrying an English bride was that they came with family, all of whom expected to have their palms crossed with silver. So, on the 5th of June... Edward Seymour was made Viscount Beecham, and further jobs quickly followed. Governorship of Jersey, Chancellor of North Wales. Later the same year, his brother Thomas Seymour would be admitted to the Privy Chamber and land a couple of handy sinecures too. And in 1537, Edward made it to the Privy Council. As the Seymours rose up the ladder, holding on firmly to their sister's skirts, Spare a thought for the desperate cries of the man sliding down the snake following his daughter's severed head. It's the final chapter for Thomas Boleyn, the final countdown. All his ambition had brought him, in the end, pretty much nowhere. 
during the trial of his daughter, after taking part in the court of Oye and Termina that condemned her supposed lovers, he was nowhere to be seen. No record remains of any pleading. And although that doesn't mean he didn't make said pleading, he did not walk away from the Oye and Termina, though that would have been hard. By July 1536, Cromwell, the architect of his daughter and son's destruction, coolly took salt and rubbed it firmly into Boleyn's wounds, having him dismissed from the office of Lord Privy Seal and taking the job for himself. It got worse. Even locally, Boleyn was ousted from positions of power, losing his positions of commissions of the peace, excepting only Kent. And Henry forced him to pay the salaries of courtiers from the annuities he'd been given back in his glory days. And then, in 1538, Piers Butler, who Boleyn had forced to back down from his claims to the earldom of Ormond, reasserted himself and took it back. Effectively, the only thing Boleyn gained from his playing of the great game was the earldom of Wiltshire. And since he no longer had any heirs, there must have been a hollow pleasure. The only person that survives the whole train smash is probably much maligned Mary Boleyn. She at least had a family and seems to have lived out her life in obscurity. There seem to be differing opinions, but the version of events I like, and therefore choose to believe, is the one where Thomas Boleyn is reconciled to his elder daughter. You might remember that Mary's marriage to William Stafford had been discovered and Queen Anne had banished Mary from court in a huff. Mary had begged her father, her brother, her sister for help, for money, to be received at court because her husband was a lovely lad, but he didn't have two brass farthings to rub together. Both her father and brother turned her aside. They drew their skirts aside and raised their noses censoriously airwards. Nor would Anne receive her at court, but she did send her a gold cup at very least. So, the story I like is that Thomas Blynn was reconciled to Mary and William and lent them Rochford Hall to live in. Thomas Blynn died in 1539, Mary died in 1543. She had two children with William, but they probably did not long survive her death. It's all very melancholic, isn't it? Sick transit, Gloria Monday and all that. However, she'd also had two kiddiewinks with her first marriage, Catherine Carey and Henry Carey. Just so happens that these two were the only living relatives poor old Elizabeth I had, and so she treasured them. Catherine married a Knowles and became a lady of the bedchamber and one of her daughters married Dudloy, Earl of Leicester. She had Henry Carey ennobled. So there's something, some final remaining consolation from all the ambition and the striving and the death and the destruction. But there has to be some kind of universal truth that it was Mary's side of the family to whom this consolation was delivered. If you know what that universal truth is, let me know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the other very obvious differences between Queen Jane and Queen Anne was that there was no question at all of Jane leading a faction in the way that it is supposed Anne did. Ooh, just for the record, by the way, I had avoided stating an opinion, but yes, I think I buy the whole Anne Boleyn thing. 
that she was indeed an active participant in the politics of the day, that she did indeed push the evangelical agenda and protect her advocates, that she stood at the head of a Queen's faction, and that it was Henry who brought her down. Cromwell, in my view, was perfectly capable of constructing a coup to bring Anne down, but he is the most faithful of King's servants, and I believe too canny a politician to take the hideous, hideous risk of being caught out. I suspect Henry gave a steer at the will nobody rid me of this turbulent wife level, at which point Cromwell went to work and Henry was left with enough wriggle room to allow his flexible conscience to convince itself that actually he might not have believed it from the beginning, but look at what Cromwell has turned up. Good golly, he'd been right along. So there we go. I was an A. I do think, however, that Cromwell also made the situation work for him and his allies. He realised quickly that he had to destroy the whole Berlin faction. Hence, the absurd accusations against George Boleyn. Anyway, sorry, detour. Back to Jane. As I say, never any suggestion she'd led a faction. Nonetheless, in attracting the King's attention, she may well have been the tool of a faction. Whether or not she needed or used it, she most certainly had coaching from the religiously conservative Nicholas Carew, and probably from the Marchioness of Exeter. These are the successors of the Aragonese faction, who had been desperate to rid the world of Anne and leapt on the chance to do so through Jane. It was particularly gratifying that in Jane they'd also found somebody equally conservative in religion, though her brothers were less of a known quantity. Now that Anne had indeed gone, a lot of people sighed with relief and confidently expected little fishes to be brought to them on little dishes that their boat had now finally returned to port. Carew and Exeter were two of these. They confidently now waited for all this evangelical rubbish to be put back in the box. Maybe not the break with Rome, although that had been nice, but at least an end to the dissolution and religious innovations. And finally, and most importantly, the rehabilitation of the true heir, Princess Mary. After all, Elizabeth was now also clearly illegitimate since Cranmer had declared Anne and Henry's marriage annulled before she died. And it wasn't just the faction at court that held all these hopes. Pope Paul III, whose misreading of English politics we saw before with Fisher's elevation to the Cardinalate, innocently suggested that he would be prepared to accept Henry VIII back into the fold as long as Henry made a full confession, which was big of him, obviously. I doubt Henry gave that one more than a nanosecond's consideration. Henry was now utterly convinced he'd been right all along and the Pope never had the right to be anything more than the Bishop of Rome. There's something about Mary we need to talk about, but in order to cover that, we need to talk about where Thomas Cromwell was in all of this. The crisis and his handling of it completed Cromwell's rise to the complete domination of court politics under the King, helped by his takeover of the position of Lord Privy Seal, which he now made his own. Although I agree that the impetus to remove Anne came from Henry, Cromwell was a clever, effective and utterly ruthless politician who implemented his master's wishes. I think his handling of the crisis and the aftermath show this about as clearly as a thing can be shown, but also the dichotomy within Cromwell himself. We shall spend more time with Cromwell in the Shedcasts with a biography, but there is something of a tension in the character of Cromwell that's confusing. So on the one hand, cold, ruthless, vicious, factional politician capable of cooking up a pack of lies resulting in the deaths of innocent people. The ruthless implementation of policy, whatever the cost in lives. And then set against this, 
the really very admirable, even heartwarming loyalty towards Wolsey, his famously generous treatment of the poor, the strength of his personal relationships in his household with the likes of Ralph Sadler and, of course, his son Gregory, and actually holding his hand against many people who are accused of treason. For me, the explanation lies in cold, hard pragmatism and loyalty. Cromwell had plenty of capacity for human feeling and empathy, but his absolute priority was loyalty to his master and the requirement to deliver his master's needs without swerving. He gave the same loyalty to Henry that he gave to Wolsey. That required that he remain in control politically, and so number two priority was just that, to stay in power. It's like Asimov's law of robotics, you know, three laws in descending order of priority because I suspect that only when one and two were satisfied would Cromwell allow himself to indulge those more comfortable and attractive feelings that fellow feeling justice and empathy gave him. Obviously, I could be wrong. That's just my reading of the bloke. I think this dichotomy is why he can be presented by some authors as a cold-hearted monster and others as a rather attractive family man and bureaucrat just doing his best, because he was both. And I think there's a good example of this in his treatment of Mary and her supporters. Now, it was not in Cromwell's interests to see the triumph of the traditionalist allies who'd helped bring down Anne and coach Jane Seymour to success. They would provide a tiresome counterpoint to his own influence. And they did not accord with his religious reformist tendencies. Most importantly, he was absolutely aware that Henry would be dead set against any idea of legitimising Mary To do so would be a humiliating acceptance to the world that all that stuff with Catherine had been simple lust for Anne, that his talk of royal supremacy was moonshine. Mary and her supporters were blissfully unaware of all this. Carew, the Marquis of Exeter, William Fitzwilliam, Anthony Brown, Francis Bryan, all these folks thought that now the cloud of Anne Boleyn had passed the bright sun would shine on all of their hopes. Mary would be reinstated. All this reformist rubbish would be stopped. They would dance naked in fields of flowers under a warm sun while small fluffy bunnies with white cottony tails gambled and played at their feet. And it's not surprising. Poor Mary is still just 20. Over the last few years, the pressure and pain from her father had led her to spend hours and days sobbing her heart out in her room, made illegitimate, humiliated into serving in her baby sister's household, prevented her from being at her beloved mother's side when she died, resulted in sickness and headaches, to problems with menstruation that would plague her all her life to insomnia. It's hardly surprising that she assumed that when the person she blamed for all of this was gone, that all would be set to rights. Despite her stubbornness, there's an innocence still in Mary which her letters to Cromwell and her father display. Mary and Elizabeth were together at the attractive manor of Hunsdon, Such was the hope now that some of Mary's old servants turned up, expecting to be readmitted. Shepwee was more cautious, and he warned her keeper, Lady Shelton, not to admit anyone without Henry's express orders. He had a better understanding of Henry's mind. But it all seemed to start very well. So Mary wrote a happy letter to Cromwell, asking him to intercede with the king, her father, and let him get in touch with him. She's sorry she hadn't asked before but I perceived that nobody durst speak for me, as long as that woman lived, who I pray our Lord in her mercy to forgive. Cromwell seems to have written back to her positively, though with a warning that more would be expected of her. In her happiness, either Mary missed the signs, or indeed Cromwell was actually egging her on to her own destruction. 
because she wrote again to Cromwell happily, the bunnies hopping playfully around her feet, that she was sure he has forgiven all her offences and withdrawn his displeasure. She hopes God will preserve him and the Queen and send him a prince. Full of confidence, she wrote directly to the King, asking for permission to come and see him again, again apologising for her previous stubbornness, promising to be a good daughter and obedient in all, congratulating him on his marriage. She made no mention of accepting the annulment of her mother's marriage to him or of the royal supremacy. She sent the letter off. She may have danced with the bunnies a little more and tickled their little noses while she lovingly waited for her loving father's loving reply. If Henry was indeed tempted to take this as a chance to welcome his daughter lovingly back into the fold, though it's unlikely, Cromwell would have disabused him of the notion. As far as Cromwell was concerned, it was critical that Mary accept the invalidity of her parents' marriage. It was critical that she accept the royal supremacy. It was critical because without this, Mary would always remain as a beacon of hope and centre of resistance to the religious reforms and a counterweight to Cromwell's own influence. Mary must be made to submit. And with her submission would come the fall of the traditionalist faction. Once that was done, yes, Henry should indeed do right by his daughter. Mary should be allowed a proper place at court and relationship with her dad. He, Cromwell, would work hard to bring that about. By encouraging Mary to write, failing to impress on her the level of submission required, Cromwell ensured that the resulting fallout would deliver everything he wanted. By June the 10th, the fluffy bunnies around Mary's feet were looking a bit bedraggled. Henry had been furious with her letter. Mary had been left in no doubt of the price of entry. Indeed, failure to recognise the royal supremacy would be an act of treason under the 1534 Treason Act. Her desperate letter to Cromwell begged him, I desire you for Christ's passion to find some means that I not be moved to any further entry in this matter than I have done, for I assure you I have done the utmost my conscience will suffer me. The answer to that entreaty was, mm, mm, no. Cromwell wrote, To be plain with you, I think you the most obstinate woman that ever was, he said. And if you don't conform to your father's will, he continued, I will never think of you other than the most ungrateful, unnatural and most obstinate person living. She should be most afraid and ashamed. On the 15th of June, a delegation appeared at Hunston to see Mary. It was led by the Duke of Norfolk, and at his side was the Earl of Sussex, a man we have not come across before, but who a few days earlier had proposed in King's Council that Henry Fitzroy, Henry's illegitimate son by Bessie Blunt, be promoted to royal succession. As it happens, this would anyway have been poor advice, because a few weeks later, Henry Fitzroy died, and any remaining such temptation disappeared. Now, for Mary, this was a brutal meeting. Norfolk demanded that she accept her own illegitimacy and recognise her father as the head of the church in England. Furiously and emotionally, Mary replied she could not do this by her conscience and refused. Norfolk aggressively threatened her. If she'd been his daughter, he said, they would knock her head so violently against the wall they would make it as soft as baked apples. Mary held firm, the delegation left, the bunnies were gone to be found in the gamekeeper's pie covered in gravy. Mary's neuralgia returned. On the return of Norfolk and Sussex to London, council went into an emergency session which was advised that in legal terms, Mary was indeed guilty of treason. Cromwell depressed the clutch, moved into a higher gear. Mary was being encouraged in her delinquency. 
the Marquis of Exeter and William Fitzwilliam were thrown off the council. Anthony Brown, Francis Bryan were arrested and interrogated about their involvement with her. Carew realised the game was up. He wrote to Mary, telling her to submit. Cromwell convinced Chapuis that if Mary wanted the bunnies back, she must surrender, and if she did not, the alternative was death. Chapuis was duly convinced, and he advised Mary to give in, and reminded her that metaphorically she had her fingers crossed anyway, since an oath given under duress was no real oath. Jane intervened with Henry at this point, begging him to accept his daughter back to court, only to be rudely repulsed. She would try again, once again suggesting that Jane was tougher than she's been allowed. At this point, Cromwell seems to have moved from bullying mode and adopted the avuncular. He drafted a letter for Mary that would do the job, and now finally Mary capitulated. She copied Cromwell's letter as she said, word for word. She acknowledged Henry's supremacy. She repudiated the Bishop of Rome. And most painfully of all, I do freely and frankly acknowledge that the marriage the heretofore had between His Majesty and my mother, the late Princess Dowager, was by God's law and man's law incestuous and unlawful. By golly, it's no good Chapuis pretending that this meant nothing but the need to survive. Mary had become a political cipher and everyone knew it. Charles V was first perplexed, and then he received an unasked-for sunny letter from Mary confirming that it was all genuine and deeply meant, and he lost any interest in her. He knew she no longer had any political value. Her supporters knew it too, and from now on they would need to look for other ways to hold back the reformist tide, to the Bishop of Winchester the King, to foreign pressure, to protest. Deep down, Mary knew that her desire for acceptance had led her to abandon everything she'd held dear and fought for so hard over the last few years. But there were indeed rewards. She was accepted back at court, and all was opened for her. The king and queen travelled to the fair town of Hackney to meet her. The king showered her with praise and talked incessantly and gave her a thousand crowns. Then she was brought to court, befriended by Queen Jane, and took her place in precedence just behind the queen. Cromwell was now absolutely part of all this. Mary thanks Cromwell effusively for the help he had given in drafting the letter. He had a ring made for her. In August, Mary wrote to him to thank him for the well-favoured horse you've given me with a very goodly saddle, for which I do thank you with all my heart. Now that he had achieved his ends, Cromwell was all helpfulness, and Mary was convinced that he had indeed been working behind the scenes to help her, and acknowledged Cromwell's good intentions towards her, and that he has been and is still working for her welfare and the settlement of her affairs. And it seems to be the truth. In July, Henry even tore a strip off his minister for his espousal of Mary's cause, so that Cromwell told Chapuis he was a dead man. There was a rumour that Cromwell was aiming to marry Mary, and an absurd rumour, something Cromwell was far too sensible to have ever countenanced. However, the cold reality, as represented in an Act of Parliament that very summer, was that both Mary and Elizabeth were now excluded from the succession. And until Jane and Mary should have a child the heir would be appointed by the king in his will. Little Elizabeth was not yet three. Even she spotted the change. She demanded, Why, Governor, how haps it yesterday, Lady Princess, and today but Lady Elizabeth? Cromwell also turned his mind to her support, responding comprehensively to Elizabeth's mistress, Lady Bryan, to supply a long list of needs. But there was no getting around the fact that the succession was in a more perilous state than it had ever been. 
Now there was no official heir at all. The king still needed a son. You will have noticed that although I promised to talk of a pilgrimage this week, I've not done so, mea culpa, and generally, oops. Next week, promise, we'll return to the dissolution and get that pilgrimage into the story. Before I go, don't forget TudorFair.com. Don't forget that membership of the History of England may just well make the perfect Christmas present for your loved ones. And if you do agree, just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk where you can do just that and still have it as a surprise on Christmas Day. Meanwhile, thank you all for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.